Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. My name is Sam, I work here, and it gives me both professional and personal pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Uh, Bryony Hudson will be known to many of you, uh, possibly because for a decade she was keeper of the collections of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, because she's the author of several books, including one on licorice and the English Delphware drug jars. Her most recent book will be out on Friday, and it's a history of the uh, London School of Pharmacy, so we look forward very much to that. Part of the pleasure, however, has to be because um, Brani was my predecessor here as uh, um, what are we? Director of Museums and Archives, um, and uh, so it's Brani who taught me everything um, uh, I know about the college collections here. <laughs> However, as we shall find out, she did not teach me everything she knows, and that's what we'll learn today um, from Bryony about our own collection of drug jars. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam, and thank you for inviting me, Anna. Um, can everybody hear me okay? That's the first thing to check. If at any point you can't, do wave a hand and uh, we'll do something about it. And as is usual, I think, with the lunchtime lectures, I'm very happy to take questions at the end. Um, so if you've got any burning uh, queries, then uh, please come back to me at the end. Giving this talk has enabled me to explore a lesser known part of the collections here at the college, which is always a pleasure, of course. And what I hope I can provide to you this afternoon is some insights into English Delphware drug jars generally, and more particularly, to share as much as I can of the collection here at the college, both by means of images and information. The majority of the collection was a bequest by Sir Sinclair Thompson in 1943, um, with just three additional jars being given to the college since. The vast majority of the images and examples on my slides through the talk are from the college's collection. I have to say the jars themselves are not currently on display, but the college does have a brilliant online catalogue called Surgicat. Um, it's got full details of them, including at least one photograph for each, if my talk whets your appetite to find out a little bit more. And of course, there are lots of other collections of pharmaceutical Delft that are on display um, in both institutions and museums, and I'll touch upon a few of those as I go through the talk. Before I move on to uh, the first slide, I should uh, just, of course, refer to the quotation in my title. In painted pots is hidden the deadliest poison, um, is a quotation from a book by John Lilly entitled Euphues, which was published in 1578 and has been called by some the first English novel. I think, with that date in mind, he was probably referring to imported European pots rather than the English ones, which are the topic of my talk. Um, they were widely accepted in this period as the symbol of an apothecary shop. Um, and whether the pots contain the deadliest poison is something that we'll come back to later. If you've never encountered Delphware drug jars, or to give them another name, tin-glazed apothecary jars before, they may appear to be beautiful, but quite unintelligible. But in fact, with quite a, just a little inside information, they reveal fascinating glimpses into 17th and 18th century medicinal practice. And John Hunter, the reason we're sat in this building, I guess, um, his date 1728 to 1793, if you're not aware, would have seen these jars in many apothecary shops in London um, during his lifetime. 
When it comes to looking at the individual examples, I view gleaning the information from them as a bit like cracking a code, and actually that's a session that I have run with school children in various uh, guises. Um, what I mean by that is with a few bits of background information and looking at the jars very carefully, um, the, the information you need, the details are there on the jar to be discovered. And of course, as with most codes, the more conversant you become in the code, the more confident you can be about looking at the jars, which is why it's great to come here and look at this collection. Um, the jars, as Sam has uh, suggested, that I know best are held at the Pharmaceutical Society, where I was keeper for about 10 years, and that's where I learned to crack the code. And my aim for you, by the end of my talk, is that you will be able to go some way towards deciphering these jars and therefore increase your enjoyment of looking at them. But first of all, I think we ought to just uh, nod towards the, the, the person who uh, bequeathed the pots to the college. Um, this is a lovely miniature by Percy Buckley, um, done in 1933, of Sir Sinclair Thompson. Um, having gained his MD in 1888, he became a Fellow of the College in 1893 and the College of Physicians in 1903, and his specialism was laryngology. He held a number of posts in the field, most notably as professor and consultant physician for diseases of the throat at King's College Hospital. He was also president of the Royal Society of Medicine in the 1920s, uh, with a legacy that includes funding their coat of arms and uh, a fund, a trust in his name there still. And he was president of the Medical Society of London as well. He was author of a number of works in his specialism and also developed his own adenoid forceps and curette, and there are examples of both in the college collections. And of course, importantly for us today, he was a collector of pharmaceutical ceramics. But unless anyone can shed any light in the room, we don't know anything about why, when, or where. He was certainly collecting these items at a time when they were neither popular or expensive. And on his death in 1943, he bequeathed the collection to be distributed between the Society of Apothecaries, the Barber's Company, and the College of Surgeons. And the majority came here, including continental jars, as well as the English ones I'm going to talk about today. So, very briefly, why might he have become interested in pharmacy jars? I'm intrigued, and I don't have the answer, but I have the context. In 1908... Um, writing in the Connoisseur, Connoisseur magazine, Henry Walker wrote, the collection of old pharmacy jars does not appear to have received the attention of connoisseurs to any appreciable extent. However, in 1951, Geoffrey Howard, a pharmacist from a long line of pharmacists, wrote, drug jars are fast disappearing from the market. They have become a kind of craze. So what happened in between? What changed collectors' minds? Well, in 1931, Howard, a passionate collector of drug jars himself, published a book on his own drug jar collection. And in English Delphware drug jars, he really lets his enthusiasm run riot. Um, one example, he waxes lyrically, writing, just as Pepys's diary brings us adorably in touch with the everyday life of our ancestors, so, as we shall see, do these fat, smug, comfortable little vessels with their dates, initials, and inscriptions. Perhaps it was Howard's book that inspired Thompson. Perhaps he got it as a Christmas present. It certainly seems to have marked or initiated momentum more widely in collecting pharmaceutical jars. One other key player in this movement was Agnes Lovian, and she was appointed as librarian at the Pharmaceutical Society in 1940. Um, she was put in charge of its historical collections, and one of the things that she did in order to build up her own knowledge was to visit other institutions. 
1943, as we know, Thompson donated his jars to the college, and Agnes Lothian appears to have been quick to have got herself an invitation to come to see them. The resulting article that she wrote for the annals of the college has, as I'm sure you can imagine, been very useful for preparing today's talk, so thank you, Nan. But let's look at the jars, and you can see quite an imposing spectacle um, here in a uh, French illustration from the year about 1700. In England, and increasingly Scotland, and perhaps Ireland and Wales in the 17th and 18th centuries, wealthy apothecaries stored their medicinal preparations and ingredients in tin-glazed earthenware jars. With blue and white decorated labels, they were both attractive and functional, and would be guaranteed, certainly with an array like this, to impress customers and fellow medical practitioners. The jars were extremely fashionable, and the most eminent apothecaries commissioned them, some with their initials and the date included in the design, as we'll see. But in the interest of going back to basics, let's pause briefly to confirm what we mean by an apothecary. And here is one depicted in an image of about 1815. The word apothecary is derived from apotheca, meaning a place where wine, spices and herbs were stored. And in England, during the 13th century, it came into use to describe a person who kept and sold a stock of those commodities. In London, following links with the livery companies of pepperers and spices and then grocers, the apothecaries with their specialist pharmacy skills wanted to break free and they petitioned to establish their own body. They were finally successful under the leadership of Gideon de Lorne, who was a Huguenot apothecary and an apothecary to Anne of Denmark, the wife of James I. Now, whether this royal connection was a deciding factor really isn't clear, but the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries was granted a royal charter on the 6th of December, 1617. And we should note at this point that the society's powers only extended to London. You do find people calling themselves apothecaries at other places around the country in this period, but they weren't members of the London-based livery company, although probably carried out similar work. The Society of Apothecaries was based in this hall, where they still are today, near Blackfriars, and from 1672 until 1922, they manufactured and sold medicinal and pharmaceutical products at this hall. In 1673, they founded Chelsea Physic Garden, probably known to some of you, um, to be able to grow supplies of the medicinal ingredients that they needed. And they only relinquished managerial control of the garden in 1899. And just to give you a little bit of an insight of, of the role of the apothecary, in 1704, the society won a key legal suit, which is known as the Rose Case, against the Royal College of Physicians, and it went all the way to the House of Lords. Um, the suit, the result, um, ruled that apothecaries could dispense medicines, as we might see a pharmacist do today, but could also prescribe them. And this led directly to the evolution of those apothecaries into today's general practitioners. That also allowed the development of a separate profession of pharmacy, a pharmacist inheriting the apothecary's expertise in the science and production of medicines. And then, just over a century later, the Apothecaries Act of 1815 gave the Society of Apothecaries the right to conduct examinations and grant licences to practice medicine throughout England and Wales. And to give you a sense of the scale of the profession, between about 1815 and 1834, 6,000 of these new apothecaries' licences were issued. And interestingly, sat in this building, half of them were to surgeons, as there was a dual role of surgeon apothecary. So now we know what an apothecary is. What is Delftware? Well, the terms Delftware, 
myolica and faience, and probably also the term galley pots, all refer to tin-glazed earthenware. So called because tin oxide was added to the glaze to make it white and opaque, alongside in the glaze lead oxide, powdered sand and potash. The earthenware body of the pot was impossible to form into a very delicate shape, and it also chips very easily. So two defining, defining features of these jars are their bulk, if you compare them to porcelain, and the damage that they've suffered over the centuries. If you see a chipped one, it's probably old and it's probably genuine. The varying names relate to the jar's origins over time. Myolica, as some of the jars probably either originated in Mallorca or were traded via Mallorca, Fiance after Fienza, and the jar that we've got here from the college collections was made in Fienza, uh, sorry, in Fienza in about 1560. Galley pots, another term, probably because of the galley ships on which the pots arrived in England. And then the most widespread term we use today, Delftware, because of the great quantities produced in Delft in the Netherlands in the 18th century. And this pot, again, from the college collection, was made in Delft and is very typical of an 18th century Delft Dutch pot. The earliest use of tin-glazed earthenware was by the Assyrians in about 1000 BC, with a revival of the technique by the Persians in the 8th century AD. The Moors then introduced the style into Spain, and named drug jars first started appearing there in the mid-15th century. The style and techniques gradually spread through Western Europe, through Italy from the 13th century, where perhaps the most attractive drug jars started being made from the 15th century. The style then reached the Netherlands in the early 16th century. However, before all these jars were made in Europe, they were also being imported from Persia and Syria and continued to be so in parallel. It's been suggested that the different centres for making tinglazed earthenware um, were prompted by demand from monasteries for containers to hold drugs and medicines. However, as I'm sure you know, tinglazed earthenware, Delftware, was used to make a much wider range of items than simply drug jars. I'm not sure how much weight I'd give that theory. And here's one example of something, again, quite surprising to find in the college collection that isn't a drug jar but made of Delftware. This tile... Um, was made in the Oldgate Pottery in London, which operated from the 1570s. And as I'm sure you've seen, tiles are perhaps the most common place that we'll see Delftware, particularly pretty blue and white ones around uh, um, uh, fireplaces in, in stately and, and less, uh, less stately homes. Earthen, tin-glazed earthenware was also used to make dishes, vases, and storage vessels of many shapes and sizes. The normal process to decorate Delftware was for the unglazed earthenware, or bisque as it was known, to be fired at a low temperature, then dipped in the glaze and allowed to dry. The design was then painted on the dry surface. And to produce the characteristic blue and white, the blue was made from painting cobalt oxide, um, and then in a second high temperature firing, the design would fuse into the tin glaze like an enamel. This double firing was in contrast to the more common lead glaze pots, which only received a single firing. So when did this type of ceramic reach our shores? When did it reach uh, England? Delphware arrived in England, we can be quite specific, in, in 1567, because two uh, potters, Joris and Jasper Andres, fled to England from Antwerp because of persecution due to their Protestant faith. Jasper was joined by a Jacob Janssen, and they first established a pottery in Norwich. 
We know they made drug jars, but we're not clear quite how many made up that, that early business. They moved to London in 1570, and they started their business there in Oldgate, in the city. Um, and the city soon became the base for a number of potteries, as you can see from this map, producing tin glaze and earthenware, centred on Southwark and Lambeth, and we've got a real cluster there, ironically around the current headquarters of the Pharmaceutical Society, no particular link. The clay used to make the pots was transported first from Yarmouth and later from the Suffolk coast in Kent. So, of course, the fact that all of these are on the river is absolutely key. They were making good use of the Thames as a major transport route. A total of 19 potteries made Delftware in the London area, but potteries also later sprang up in Brislington, on the outskirts of Bristol, Bristol itself, Wincanton in Somerset, Belfast, Dublin, Ross Trevor, Limerick and Glasgow, so it became quite far-flung. And I should just acknowledge that this map um, is taken from a great book by Alison Dawson on English and Irish Delftware at the British Museum, which was published in 2010. So if you're interested in their collection, it's well worth buying or borrowing. Perhaps surprisingly, we don't know a lot about what was used to hold medicinal ingredients before Delftware was first used in England, probably in the late 1500s. What we do know is that keeping medicines and medicinal ingredients in appropriate storage is something that writers had been aware of for a very long time. Galen, perhaps the most prominent Roman, ancient Roman physician and writer, impressed upon his readers at numerous times the need for proper preservation of drugs to maintain their activity. By the 16th century in Britain, ceramic pots were certainly being used. Leg-glazed alborellos or wasted jars have been discovered in archaeological digs. And it seems that pots were used by individuals as well as apothecaries in their shops. Nicholas Culpepper, in his famous Complete Herbal of 1653, includes in his description of lozenges that it's better to carry them in paper in your pocket rather than to bring a galley pot along with you. That's probably good advice. There are dated posset pots and wine bottles with inscriptions as early as 1628, but English Delftware drug jars don't really come into their own until the 1650s. So let's have a look at the first element that will help us to crack this code of the, uh, the, the drug jars, the shape of the jar. English Delftware apothecary jars can be categorised into three main groups based on shape and therefore on their function. So here's the first one. Until about the 1650s, the only Delftware jars that we think were used to hold medicinal substances were unlabeled. They're tin-glazed earthenware, but they're in a very simple form, as you can see. We've really just got a cylinder, which has got a lip at the top and the bottom. They've got simple geometric designs, this one with stripes, but sometimes with cross-hatching or diamonds, presumably to allow the owners to distinguish between them. And this example from the college collection dates from the later 1600s, but is, is typical of its type. Just to give you a sense of size, you can see the little uh, measure at, at the bottom, um, but this one is uh, just under 12 centimetres tall by 15 centimetres in diameter. You find them in a wide range of sizes. So that one is known as the early drug jar. Then we have a, a more sophisticated type, shall we say, from around 1650, um, this one, um, known to, to collectors as a dry drug jar, is again a cylinder, but it's more significantly tapered into a more elegant shape um, and slightly larger. This one's 16 centimetres tall 
um, and that is quite typical of, of this style. So it's a dry drug jar because it wasn't used to hold liquids. The ones that were used to hold liquids are normally known as syrup jars or wet jars. And you can see, quite obviously, um, from both the spout, there we go, and the handle, a bit like a teapot, um, that it was very practical, used to pour out your liquid um, medicine. Um, again, sense of, of scale, this one's 20 centimetres tall, and again, that's quite typical. And then we have variations on those basic three shapes. This is also a syrup jar, but comes up later in the period that the jars were made, in the 18th century, and it doesn't appear to have a handle or a spout. Um, it doesn't have a handle, but it does have a spout, which is on the opposite side, always, from the uh, cartouche, from the label and the decoration. And you can see there we've got a conical base used by the apothecary, as by the museum curator, to be able to pick up a jar that doesn't have a handle. This one looks like a dry drug jar, and the only reason um, that um, you might um, suspect it wasn't if I brought it in front of you is that it's really small. It's just under 10 centimetres tall, and it was used to hold pills or extracts, and this one was used to hold pills of, ru of rhubarb, slightly more squat than the dry drug jar, um, the larger ones, but obviously a very similar shape. And finally, we've got a hybrid. We've got an oil jar, and it's, if you like, a dry drug jar with the syrup jar's spout on it. Um, this one's from the Pharmaceutical Society collection. They're pretty rare, and there isn't one in the college collection. And what about lids, I hear you ask? You wouldn't want your medicines to get dirty and dusty. Well, this image is from a 17th century original, 19th century engraving, and you can just about see in the Merck this uh, drug jar in the front, and you can see it's got a lid tied on, and we think they were either vellum or parchment or perhaps fabric um, used to uh, protect the contents and also over the spouts of the wet drug jars, we believe. Later, the jars were, was again, difficult to see because of the, the colour there, but later, metal jars, um, metal lids, sorry, were, were made to fit earlier jars to, uh, to carry out that practical purpose. So, once you've established from the shape of the jar what type of substance it may have held, you can look at the decoration. Delfware drug jars have common features, as I'm sure you've already gathered. Um, the abbreviated Latin inscription, the decorated label around the outside, and generally that comes in a number of small, a small number rather, of designs, and we'll have a look at those in a minute. If you're lucky, you also got a date, and this one's split. It says 1672, and if you're even luckier, you get, uh, you get initials in the centre, and that says IEW, although probably was supposed to be JW due to the styling, and that would probably have belonged, the initials would have belonged to the apothecary who commissioned the jars. Other collections have successfully um, uh, quarried the uh, records at the Society of Apothecaries and managed to come up with some, some real-life apothecaries who are most likely to have commissioned the jars. Um, be lovely exercise to carry out on the ones here. The other thing to point out, which is very typical is that the abbreviated label normally starts with a single letter which tells you the type of medicine that it's holding. In this case, it's quite unusual. That T stands for trochase, which is T-R-O-C-H-E-S, which is lozenges. And this little jar held lozenges which included aloes, ambergris and musk. They were very expensive, um, believed to strengthen the brain, the heart and sweeten the breath. 
more typically, you'll come across an S for syrup, or syrupus in Latin, a C for conserve, an E for a lechery, which is a, a very thick remedy, an O for oleum, or oil, and confusingly, a V, or a U, for unguentum, or ointment, the V, again, part of the styling. As with collectors in all areas, terminology starts to develop that allows them to talk to each other in common parlance. And for pharmaceutical Delphware, this shared ground is mainly around the names given to the different designs found on the jars, and then the date spans that these designs seem to converge around. Rather like fashions on the high street, spring-summer 1660 in English pharmacy Delft meant a design incorporating an angel with outspread wings if you wanted to be really fashionable. Forty years later, you'd want jars that featured the god Apollo flanked by peacocks to be avant-garde. And of course, we're talking years here rather than months or weeks in terms of changes in fashion. Uh, took much longer than the in the days before Cosmopolitan or BBC Three. The cartouche designs, as I say, have been categorised by collectors and curators into a number of types, and then dated examples of the jars allow a date range to be attributed to each type so that undated jars can also be provided with a period in which they might have been made with a degree of confidence. This is an example of the earliest design type categorised by collectors, and it's known as pipe-smoking man, because of the grotesque head in profile that appears at either end of the label. There are two known dated examples of this pipe-smoking man jar, uh, one from 1652 and one from 1665, and also a wine jug and a tankard, both dated 1654 with that same design. So collectors, as I've put on the slide, suggest that this pipe-smoking man design dates from about 1650 to 1670. The collection here includes six dated jars, but the only pipe-smoking man one we have there on the left um, isn't a dated one. Just to point out um, the features of this jar, so we've got this grotesque head here, we've got edging in scrolls and a very straight label, and you'll see that this varies as we go through the different design types. What is coming out of the man's mouth has been subject to discussion. Geoffrey Howard, who, remember, was the, uh, the very um, uh, passionate collector in the 1930s, was the first to write about this design and thought that it was a clay pipe. Therefore, it was given this name. And certainly, smoking a clay pipe was a common pursuit in this period, and tobacco had been introduced as a medicinal herb in the late 16th century. But there are other theories, and I can only leave it up to you to make up your own mind. Is it the Green Man, Jack in the Green, jo Green George, Robin Goodfellow? He's often seen um, as a pagan deity surrounded by leaves and found in plenty of churches, both in England and on the continent, and he's shown with vegetation emerging from his mouth. Perhaps this is foliage, not a pipe. My vote goes to a theory that it's a Dutch gaper. Um, these were large carved wooden heads, many with protruding tongues with a pill on the end, um, which were found outside the shops of Dutch apothecaries in this period. And of course, with the movement of the Dutch potters from the uh, Low Countries to England, it would make sense for them to bring one of these cultural references with them. The fact that so few, of, few jars of this design have survived has led some to suggest they were destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666, but we mustn't forget that these jars were a very new development and they were very expensive, so perhaps there just weren't that many in the first place. I'm now going to take you through just a few of the other design types 
um, so you can get a sense of the different styles. This one's known as ribbon cartouche, and as you can see, the label's in the form of a ribbon with swallowtail ends. The folds of the ribbon here are sometimes used to contain that initial letter that I was talking about. And as you can see from the slide, there are dated examples from 1655 and then until 1666. So the sense is that the design was popular until about 1670. That means it was being produced at the same time as the pipe-smoking man. And then we've already seen the angel with outspread wings, um, which first appeared in the late 1650s and was quite a long-standing design, still being made in the uh, 1720s. It's the ribbon design. You can see the ribbon here but an angel has taken a rest on the top and spread its wings out. Um, there's been lots of discussion in the literature about the hairstyle of the angel. Sounds a bit strange, but true. Um, does it give a clue to the date of the jar or the political allegiance of the apothecary owner? Geoffrey Howard felt he could identify both Puritan and royalist hairstyles. However, there are sets of jars that were made all in the same um, date, all for the same pharmacy, um, that appear to have varying hairstyles. So we'll see where we go with that theory. But I thought you might like to have a little look at just a range of the different angels that, uh, that are, uh, are found on these jars. He's a bit Oliver Cromwell, isn't he? And there's Charles II, maybe? And that one's, well, goodness only knows, a bit like a court jester. Anyway, up to you. <laughs> Collectors call uh, this type of jar an angel transitional design. Um, we've still got the angel on the top, but we've got new features appearing on the bottom. This one, um, from the Pharmaceutical Society collection, as you can see, has a rose and dates from around 1700. This one from the college has a scallop shell. Now, whether that's a reference to St. James of Compostela and his pilgrims, um, we don't know. But as I'm sure you're aware in this Rococo period, um, shells were a key design element across things much more widely than ceramics. We then have the fleur-de-lis design, which was also being made at the same time as the pipe-smoking man, the ribbon cartouche and the angels. Um, it's got a very thick decorative line and these big swags underneath, the fleur-de-lis in the centre bottom, which gives it its name. And, well, what are they? Are they stag's antlers at the top or some kind of foliage um, finishing off the design there? This example from the college collection is actually unique in having a tulip at the bottom. Again, maybe a Dutch potter who is feeling a little bit homesick. This jar raises a quick question, maybe it only interests me, but when does an individual design become a design type? This jar has only one other friend in the same design. It's similar to the fleur-de-lis design, with this thick wavy outline, but it's clearly much more embellished with fruit and foliage, and we've got little birds sitting on the top. Agnes Lothian called it the early songbirds design, but I think as she looked after one of the only two examples, she was at liberty to describe it. And then we move on to the god Apollo, who's the central figure in the Society of Apothecaries' coat of arms. In English jars, he's often combined with peacocks. Now, as we've already seen, in Dutch jars, it's very common to find peacocks. You only see them on English jars if Apollo is present. And here's one from the college collection. So there's Apollo in the centre, and there he's got his little peacocks flanking him on either side. There are also designs from this period, which is the early 18th century, with Apollo 
but he's got waves crashing around him and sea serpents. That one's from the Pharmaceutical Society collection. So for some reason, at the beginning of the 18th century, Apollo gets his little time in the limelight. And then, through much of the 18th century, we get this rather pretty design called Later Songbirds by the collectors. Um, you can see it's got various features from the earlier designs. Um, it's got an angel below, it's got songbirds at the top, it's got that wavy line we've seen before, and some very elaborate swags and tassels. There's a suggestion that this design was heavily inspired by late Ming Chinese porcelain. Of course, all of this blue and white, um, these jars, um, were paying homage to those imports. Um, but this one in particular um, seems very much in a Chinese style. And of course, the jars were being imported into Europe and had been for at least a century from this period. And then two final, very 18th century jars. This is known as cherubs and trumpets. We've still got a basket of fruit, we've still got an angel, but we've got these little putty um, with their little, little trumpets sitting on either end. Um, circumstantial evidence based on where these jars have survived suggests that they may all have been made in Bristol. And the most common design on 18th century jars and well represented in the college collection is what's known as cherubs and shell. You can see that the cherubs have replaced their trumpet with a rather lovely flower. Um, and the central basket, you can just glimpse there, has turned into a shell. Below the label, there's most likely to be uh, flowers, difficult to see in this picture, rather than swags. Just interesting to note with uh, these, these uh, jars, which, which uh, were made all through the 18th century, um, that there are hardly any that are dated, um, as in contrast to the earlier ones. Perhaps this design feature had just gone out of fashion. I rather suspect that now they're becoming a bit more mass-manufactured, there weren't apothecaries who were prepared to pay to have them personalised with their initials and a date. And of course, all the jars we've seen so far have been blue and white. And all the jars in the college collection are blue and white, but you do occasionally get some coloured ones. Um, there's a blue and white cherub and shell, and then there's its friends in multicolour at the Pharmaceutical Society. Those jars all date from around 1723. And if you're interested in the process behind it, um, in addition to the cobalt oxide for the blue, um, you'd use copper to produce green, manganese ore for the purple, um, iron for red, and antimony for yellow. So I've shown you lots of types of designs, but unique and unusual examples do exist. And there are two to bring your attention to in the collection here. You can see there that someone was allowed to be a lot more free and easy with their, uh, with their design. There isn't another jar like that one. Um, it was used to hold a lenative lectury, a purge, which included senna and mercury herb. And this one, which we believe has the liver bird on the top and perhaps was therefore made in Liverpool, um, Alan Humphreys, who looks after a very large Delfware collection at the Thackeray Medical Museum in Leeds, um, has his own little theory about this jar. You can just about see this satyr's head underneath. He looks like he's chewing a bow tie. I've no idea what that's about, and he doesn't either. Um, but clearly someone was allowed to have a little bit more leeway when they were painting those two pots. Unless, of course, they were commissioned, and we don't know or the owner of the pottery allowed the painters to have a, a bit more of a free, uh, creative afternoon. 
And that leads us on to look at the process by which the decoration occurred. And again, you can get the information simply by looking at the jars themselves. These are all from the college collection. There's we've got a jar. It's got the beautiful decoration, but no writing. So that shows us it was at least a two-stage process with the decoration applied first, and then perhaps the jars were stacked up ready for someone to say, right, well, this is what we need labelled in the gap that we've left. Most of the jars, as you've seen, have uh, blue writing, but some of them do have black, and it's likely that the ones with black writing were made at Mortlake Pottery. Um, we don't know whether the potters were following a template. We don't know whether they were just following fashion. Um, certainly, the fact that each jar is subtly different adds to their charm. We, we don't know a lot of answers to these questions. Something that absolutely um, um, enthralls me, though, is where things either go very right or very wrong. Here we've got an example where there's a lot of space left here. So whether they were going to write something longer or whether the person who was uh, writing in the allowed gap um, didn't quite plan out what they were doing before they started, who knows? So a nice little flourish filling the space at the end there. And in contrast, this one is absolutely full. That should, in full, um, be syrup of five roots in Latin. Um, and they've managed to S for syrup, and then they've got an E there for from, Five, which would be cinque, is, is a number five, and a Q, and a tiny little E at the top, and then roots just reduced down to radi. So that one clearly had to be a bit of a challenge to fit everything in. Something else we don't know, I seem to be telling you lots of things we don't know, is whether one pottery concentrated on a particular design, or, or designs were being made at the same pottery simultaneously, and we also are finding it very hard to work out which jars um, came from which potteries. The Museum of London Archaeology Service has carried out some work using clay samples from the pots to try to establish the constituents in the ingredients, um, but there's a lot more to do in that area. What the pots don't helpfully have, which most of their continental uh, friends do, is markings on their bases. Um, there are markings on the bases of some English jars, but they don't appear to be consistent, and they're certainly not easily attributed to a particular pottery. And as I've already demonstrated, where the different design ideas come from is, uh, is all sorts of different influences. This is the reverse of a very large Delftware display jar at the Pharmaceutical Society, and we can see very clearly the Chinese influence here. There also, as you've seen, seems to be a religious theme running through the designs, although not necessarily a Christian one. We have the pagan god, the green man. We have Apollo, the Roman god of healing. The scallop shell, perhaps, for the pilgrims to Compostela. And, of course, lots of angels and cherubs. But continental jars often have pictures of saints, and we don't have any English jars with depictions of saints. And the peacocks, the songbirds, the baskets of fruit, the fleur-de-lis don't fit clearly into that religious theme. So the only obvious evidence for the drug jars following a wider trend is, is the Chinese one, as I've said, this reverse here, and the Songbirds design, which seems quite close to late Ming Chinese porcelain. And Chinese porcelain was arriving in great, great quantities in the Netherlands in this period, carried by the Dutch East India Company. What is interesting, though, is that the Dutch jars have a much narrower uh, repertoire of designs than the English ones. 
I do know of a retired pharmacist who's currently carrying out research for his master's thesis, trying to find links in all of these design inspirations, and good luck to him. I, I wonder if the designs were simply drawn from a variety of sources, furniture, architecture, as I've mentioned, scrolls, cherubs and shells were all key design features in the Baroque and then leading into the Rococo period. Or perhaps they were originally devised by the owner, suggested by the potter, or commissioned by the apothecary. So let's finally move on to what was in these jars. In addition to their attractiveness as, as ceramics, they provide a fascinating insight into the substances prepared and sold to treat diseases over 300 years ago. The quality of the substances remained the ultimate responsibility of the Royal College of Physicians. They had the right to inspect apothecary shops and to impose stringent quality controls on both raw drugs and medicinal preparations. But was John Lilly correct to write that in painted pots is hidden the deadliest poison? Well, yet again, the answers are there on the jars when you couple them with books of the period. It's actually possible to decode the full ingredients and uses of the substances that the jars were designed to contain using books like Culpepper's Complete Herbal, which you probably know has never been out of print since its first publication in 1653. Alongside that, the official pharmacopoeias, which gave out ingredients and usage for a wide range of diseases, once they had been approved by the Royal College of Physicians, is clearly very useful. The first pharmacopoeia produced for London was in 1618, so clearly they work very well alongside these jars. One other very useful source um, happens to have been written by a man who we know owned some of these jars. John Quincy, who owned one of the jars now in the Delphware collection at the Royal College of Physicians, wrote a book called A Complete English Dispensatory in 1718. Um, again, a very good source of information. And here's a jar um, with an example um, uh, that I can find in Quincy's dispensatory. Um, you can see just about, it says ox siliticu, which is for oxymel of squills. Squills were sea onions. And vinegar made with these sea onions was boiled with honey to produce this remedy. And Quincy wrote, it is a mighty good puke for children and greatly helps to keep their stomachs and tender organs of respiration clear from that phlegm and viscidity with which they are so apt to be stuffed and sometimes quite suffocated. And to me, that sounds like asthma. Let me show you some examples of jars that contain substances that seem very strange to our 21st century understanding. This one, you can see, says Lo-Sanum. That's short for lohok sanum, which is a thick linctus. It was also known as a lick pot, and it was a thick remedy taken for chest complaints, and it was intended to be licked off a piece of licorice root. Um, the uh, recipe for this one contained pine kernels, almonds, poppy heads, and oris roots mixed with starch and sugar, and was used to relieve coughs. And Culpepper wrote that it uh, suckers the breast, lungs and throat oppressed by cold. It restores the voice lost by cold and attenuates thick and gross humours in the breast and throat. And I couldn't resist showing you this one, also from the college collection, although it is a Dutch one, I'm cheating slightly, um, but that's uh, an example. Um, you see plenty of English ones with the same label. This is oil of foxes. And the reason I couldn't resist including it is that Culpepper is a very entertaining source on this one. Um, for those of you that don't know about his herbal, he, he gives the official remedies and then provides a satirical commentary 
um, his thoughts on, on the, these official recipes. And for oil of foxes, he explains first that it was used to treat stiff joints and gout, but he's scathing. Um, the recipe requires a fat fox of middle age, and he retorts, when you have caught a fox, bring him alive to the college and let them look in his mouth and tell you how old he is. But back to Lily, neither of these is poisonous. What about these ones? Well, these are medicines that are still in use today. This pipe-smoking man we've looked at before, he was used to hold a purging electory, and the ingredients included in there were senna and licorice, and also rhubarb and tamarinds, all known for their purging properties. We've got this one, which is Mel Rosa, and that was used... It's, sorry, it's, it's honey, um, honey of roses... Um, and used for sore throats, although also attributed a wide range of other properties. Now, of course, we currently seem to value New Zealand manuka honey um, today as the most prized, um, but that wouldn't have been known in the 17th century. We also have lemon juice, that's syrup of lemon juice. And again, vitamin C would have been unknown, but it was recommended to treat a range of diseases um, proceeding from the heat of blood, including fevers and dizziness. And finally, and perhaps most interesting from the college collection, we've got oil of St. John's wort. Now, Culpepper recommended it for wounds, poisonous bites and sciatica, but also for melancholy and distraction, which is interesting, considering, as I'm sure you all know, it's used today as a herbal remedy to treat dep depression. And finally here, three substances you might recognise, but certainly not uh, for medicinal purposes. This is a bit of a false friend, absinthe. Well, it's not the green fairy played by Kylie Minogue in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. Um, absinthe um, is wormwood. And uh, Quincy suggested it was good for liver disorders and pain and wind in the stomach and bowels. We also have a conserve of horseradish, recommended for scurvy, threadworm, and to relieve flatulence, not with roast beef. And we've got a cataplasm, which is a poultice, of cumin, which was used to take away aches caused by bruises and applied to the belly for colic. But again, we've got nothing particularly poisonous here either. Instead, I wanted to end by seeing whether you were able to crack the code with my help. So here we go. Here's a jar from the collection. Let's have a look and see what we can work out. First of all, its shape means it's a dry drug jar. So not a liquid, but a dry medicinal product. There are the apothecary's initials, and if we go to the Society of Apothecaries, we might get their help to find out who SW was, and also to find out why 16, and the one six is missing, why 1678 might have been a year when he wanted some jars made. The design there, Angel with Outspread Wings, helps us to confirm that, yes, that is 1678, not 1578, not 1778, um, because we know that that's the period that that design was being used. And the jar's label. Well, if I take Culpepper, and I did lug my example here, this is my replica copy, then we can find in the sections on treacles, um, this London treacle, um, and... It was one of a number of medical treacles popular in the period. They typically had a large number of ingredients, at least 30, including opium poison, um, which was presumably the main active ingredient, but also hartshorn, lemon seeds, juniper berries, marigold flowers, 
the tops of St John's wort, ginger root, honey, and it was an official remedy in the London Pharmacopoeia from 1618 to 1721. These treacles were viewed as universal treatments, really, in the period, particularly popular as an attempt to treat the plague. Um, although Quincy, again, interestingly in this setting, also says that these, this, um, this treacle is sometimes used amongst the surgeons as a warm discutient externally applied in cataplasms, so that is as a poultice to get rid of dead tissue at a wound site. Again, interestingly, in terms of Lily's um, assertion about poison, Culpepper values this treacle to resist poison, not to poison the patient. So, in conclusion, was the deadliest poison hidden in painted pots, as Lily suggested? Well, certainly then, as now, medicines have the ability to harm if taken to excess or incorrectly. And as I've shown, these painted pots did contain a whole range of ingredients and preparations that treated a multitude of conditions. However, I think Lily's point was more within this satirical stance, which has been taken against apothecaries for centuries. Can you trust a rich medical man to make you better when profit is also their motivation? Did they know what they were doing with the contents of their Delphware jars? And this caricature by Thomas Rowlandson, dating from the early 19th century, but in the tradition of those earlier commentaries, perhaps um, best sums it up. You can see a very happy, well-fed-looking apothecary filling up his uh, jars um, with the medicines for this wretched queue, even, at Apothecary's Hall, if you can read that there. Um, behind the curtain preparing the medicines we have the skeleton and you may just be able to read on his mortar it says slow poison so an apothecary wealthy enough to afford all of these beautiful doveware syrup jars to hold his medicines fitted a long-standing stereotype and his motives would be questioned did profit or did healing take priority thank you very much Thank you very much indeed. We have some time for questions, perhaps especially if there are any apothecaries present. Um, I'd ask the speaker to recapitulate the question for the recording in brief, if you may. But mm. Please, I'll throw open the floor. Um, clearly a memory thing. Mm. About 15 years ago, a doctor in Montrose in Scotland died, and I didn't know that in his garden shed, Daughter showed me lots and lots of pots, but they were not his. Right. There were glass ones marked, but she wouldn't let me go anywhere near them because she didn't know one of them might be a poison of some kind. But the glass ones yeah. of the um, butterflies, they're not the same value as the um, death ones, are they? They're not. Um, the gentleman was just asking about glass storage jars um, and bottles rather than the Delft ones. Um, what really came next after the Delft was uh, more mass-manufactured ceramics and then mass-manufactured glass um, containers. And if you can imagine going into a 19th century pharmacy, there are plenty of reconstructed ones at museums. What you tend to get is rows and rows of the glass jars known as shop rounds. They clearly follow the tradition. They have the label on the front, they have the abbreviated Latin. The problem it leaves us with today is there are very few people who can actually translate the Latin. At the time, it was between the doctor and the pharmacist and the patient needn't worry, but if you've got them in a shed, you quite like to know <laughs> what they say. 
we have no plans currently to put them on display, um, but they're eminently usable for a temporary exhibition if the demand was high. It would be lovely, wouldn't it? And nudge, I, nudge. I think we'd have a nice <laughs> guest curator uh, here if we did, yeah. On the contrary, um, uh, anybody may see them upon request. It's just at the moment, uh, many of them are kept um, in a particularly lovely part of the college. Um, and so we need to have time to withdraw them, but they um, are, um, you know, they're uh, uh, available on public request. It takes a little while. I have a question, if I may. Okay. Um, uh, thinking about the collections of them, you mentioned the Royal uh, Pharmaceutical Society you mentioned here, and you mentioned the FACRE. Um, in the UK, where are the other major collections that one can see mm. on public display? Yeah, the FACRE Museum has the largest collection called the Wilkinson Collection. So that's the place to head for if you want to see the most. And a condition of that collection was that every single one had to be on display permanently. So that's the place. Um, other than here and the Pharmaceutical Society, the Royal College of Physicians has um, their full collection on display, and that's the second largest public collection in the country. So that's obviously the closest one to go and have a look. Not that we'd recommend the Royal College of Physicians, of course. But <laughs> They've got lovely jars. <laughs> well, um, it remains for me... Um, uh, to thank uh, our speaker and, mm. and some others. Um, if this has whetted your appetite for Bryony's professionalism, I'm delighted to say that she'll be uh, joining us again next year to work with us on our World War I uh, commemorative project, War, Art and Surgery. Um, if you can't wait that long, our next event, our next lunchtime lecture here, will be on the 24th of September when Ross McFarlane from the Wellcome Trust will come and talk to us about mermaids, as you do. Um, in the meantime, you'll see there's two evaluation uh, slips on your chairs. We'd value your feedback on today's event. And it remains only to thank our colleagues uh, from speech to text, to thank uh, Anna Darren for organizing today's event. And finally, of course, to thank once more our excellent speaker. Thanks. Thanks, Sam.